0: Hello, and welcome to Sound Control. I'm your host, Caleb Quillen, with Richard Ryan. Together, we'll be talking to musicians about their careers, their lives, and their playing. In this episode, we talk to Matt Sinnoh. Matt is the acting principal viola in the Kansas City Symphony. We talk about personal style, where he aims his mind as he plays, and we'll get to hear him play a little bit. He sounds great. Matt's a great guy, and I really enjoyed this discussion, and I think you will too. Enjoy. Thanks for joining us.
1: Yeah, thanks, man. Thanks for having me. Are you uh, a new thing for me? I've never done this before. So this is your first podcast ever. First podcast, yeah. I don't usually talk to the camera or to you guys, even at work. So (laughs) we sit on the other side of the stage, (laughs) right?
0: Especially now, we're not. We can't We can't talk to anybody, right? Like, they can't even... We can get, like, six feet, but, you know, everybody seems like they're kind of avoiding each other. At the well, that was the weird job. thing.
1: Is when we just got back to work with our new COVID protocol and, you know, socially distant stage. And then every day I go home and see my wife and she's like, so who did you talk to today at work? And I was like, nobody. I didn't talk to a <laughs> single person. I just, I went there, did my own thing and left.
0: Yeah. It's, it's kind of strange, like communicating with eye contact now only you know because it's like you you feel like you might be rude but you know nobody can take it personally right so it's just yeah like what, what you are we really gonna
1: do don't want to talk to anybody <laughs> yeah. a
0: lot of people it's a great excuse to. to not talk to anybody yeah, yeah, yeah. A great excuse but anyways um matt is our principal viola I guess acting, acting principal, principal viola acting principal. in the Kansas City Symphony. Yeah, yeah. So you're an actor as well. Yes, exactly. he is acting. I'm not a real. He's principal a viola. he's a great actor. <laughs> yeah, pretending principal viola. Yeah, well, do, you're doing a great job. <laughs> okay. And you've been here two years now. Is it almost yeah. two years? Or well, this was, is yeah, this
1: is the beginning of my third season. Is it? Oh man. Yeah.
0: Okay. Yeah. How do you feel like the job has has changed since you? got here i mean besides besides the, the elephant in the room yeah, besides, yeah
1: yeah um well you know i came in an interesting time where I, I joined the orchestra as an associate principal viola and then within a month uh the, the principal at the time she she left she took a leave of absence so immediately yeah. i was put into a um, a bigger role as acting principal and then she came back later in the season for a week. I don't know if she decided she hated me that much. I don't know what it was. She, she just quit. No, obviously it wasn't that. Um, and then she ended up leaving in the orchestra. So since I've joined, I've had to take on the role as principal. Um, but I've honestly, like, I've honestly loved it. I've, right. It's been, it's been a great experience for me. Um, just more satisfying. Yeah. You have you have more pressure. I think there's something good about having more pressure on mm-hmm. you at work. I don't know. It seems to make me a happier person. Um, and so I've always enjoyed the pressure and it, it's not like it was, it's been that much different than what I've been doing my whole life I and mean, my whole life has been music life has been, you know, I've been climbing the ladder to this point. Mm-hmm. So it, it didn't feel like it was out of my comfort zone or I was going to freak out by taking on this new role. I was actually kind of had like a nice excited, uh, man with me. I was, I was mm-hmm. eager to start it yeah. and to kind of show off your stuff. Um, yeah. So. The
0: pressure that you're talking about is is a lot of that internal, or is it? I mean, I know that it's partially because you're principal, right? Yeah, it's, it's just, just like the role of being. You're principal. just in charge of a lot more things. You have a lot yeah. more responsibility. We have like a, a yeah.
1: holiday recordings coming up this week, and I'm yeah. I'm sitting there practicing like Jingle Bells and we wish you Merry Christmas. And my wife was like, "What are you, what are you nervous for tomorrow?" I was like, "No, I'm not nervous, but yeah, if, you're, I, you're, if I come in wrong I wish you a Merry Christmas." I look like a jerk. <laughs> <laughs> like, like you know, if I'm in the back of the section, yeah. it doesn't matter. No one's gonna know. But I, I can't be coming in wrong. So
0: yeah, that's a nice little that's a nice thing to have for especially for those kinds of concerts. Like yeah. just that added uh, feeling like you're responsible for everybody coming in, even when it's a Christmas concert. You know, as yeah. opposed yeah, to you have to yeah, no matter what it
1: is, you have to show up having looked at your music. <laughs> or at least a little bit prepared. <laughs> or else you, I don't know. I would feel nervous if I wasn't prepared. But it's been a good, been a good learning thing for me because now I, I know what it means to really show up and learn your orchestra part and mm-hmm. and study it, follow your part with recordings, whatever it is. Um, so it's been a good learning experience. Yeah. And I also I have just learned that I I like the role of principal. A lot more than associate principal. <laughs> oh right. I <laughs> it's very, hear it's that very that's very different roles. It's
0: like a harder job in, in a lot of ways. Right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly. what do you feel like was the biggest difference? Just the fact that you have to also Well Yeah, you know, well like associate you're, principal, is you're you know, the, it's like you
1: you do the same amount of work, but you get paid less <laughs> and you <laughs> and you still get like equal blame if you mess something up. I mean yeah. that's not it, but it's um how do I describe it? I, I don't know. CJ Chang, he's principal of Philadelphia, and I had asked him, right before I started this job, because I was subbing there, I asked him, like, oh yeah, so I'm starting this job, I'm going to be associate principal of viola, like I know you were associate at Philadelphia Orchestra for, I don't know, 10, 12 years before yeah. becoming principal, like, so can you tell me a little bit about, like, the difference of the two, and he just, he said, he's like, when I was associate, you know, I started off under Dave Pasquale, Joseph De Pasquale, he was like a legend yeah. in the old world, he was an older at the time, and he was like, you know, my first rehearsal I came in a little bit early on an entrance and the whole orchestra kind of looked at me and David Squally looked at me and he said, you like CJ turn your chair. Like you face me. You never look at the conductor. You only watch me. And like, and he said, that's what he did. He's like for the by, my entire time under him, I, I was just facing him and I was just really doing my best to support him.
0: Communicate um, what he was doing. Yeah. 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 You
1: kind of, your role is to, to, help the principal you, you try to communicate yeah. what you're doing to the rest of the section but you don't want to it's always like tiptoe you don't want to overstep your boundaries um,
0: yeah talk a little bit about that because i've always i mean i've talked to plenty of people about that role it's it's like because you're trying to communicate what the principal is doing but also be your own uh, or have your own identity in that chair yeah. because people want you to do both things right like it's yeah, like I'm you sure. have every to every orchestra
1: is different like some mm-hmm. orchestras maybe want you to just be equal as the principal do the same amount of leading and and you know cues with your body and being mm-hmm. equally involved and maybe at the time philadelphia orchestra it wasn't like that it was like you just watch the principal like they're the leader of the ship and, mm-hmm. and just follow them and then and then of course when you get to sit up you know step up from associate to the principal position. That's the moment where it's like, whew. I remember feeling that with Kansas City Symphony. When I, when I got to play principal, it was like, it's almost like a weight was off my shoulder. Cause, wow. then, cause then you can kind of show off your stuff. And then, then I felt free. it was like, okay, I don't have to like tiptoe and make sure I'm doing everything correctly. I can mm-hmm. just, I can be the one that sets the energy for the rest of the section. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just really liked that role. I like being yeah. the one that can sit up there and be like, Hey, this is our energy. Um, you know, follow me. Do what I'm doing. Put out at least as much sound as I'm putting out. Um, so I guess that was the big difference for me between associate and principal. I yeah, feel like a, in this orchestra, we have a culture where, like, the principals are the leaders, but everybody is kind of responsible for themselves. And everybody, at least in the bass section, we've been training our whole life for things like: can you play a pizzicato along with the conductor? Mm-hmm. Right? Can you come in at the right time? But I remember there's times where I was sitting second chair to a principal and, you know, their concept of where to place a pizzicato in relation to the conductor's beat was different than mine. Right? Yeah. And so, like, to me, they're coming a little earlier or a little later than what I'm seeing coming from the conductor. And I had this, like, anxiety where, you know, I tried to, like, I'm going to watch what they're doing. But I couldn't really interpret it very well, so it was like it was actually worse. Me trying to like put myself into sync with my stand partner, like trying like eagle eyes on them, watching what they're doing instead of just kind of relaxing and and placing it. Using the, the eyes are always misleading to me.
0: I just I feel like if I look, besides maybe now having to play so far apart, I feel like the eyes are a little bit more important. Uh but i always feel like the eyes are misleading it's always the sound always comes before or or i mean or after what what i feel like i see it just never seems to be right it always seems to be a a sense and and using my ears at that point for things like that i don't know how do you feel about that is it i mean do you watch people i mean i guess you have to the 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 one thing i see with using your eyes is just Letting the other person know that you're paying attention, maybe, and then that puts yeah. you in the same. I've never you know. been a
1: big like, you know, looking around what everyone's doing. Yeah, I, mean, I know yeah. a lot of people, especially like in school and you know, you're doing chair music. It's like let's all put our stands like below our freaking ankles so we can look at each other when we play. <laughs> Personally, I kind of find that a little like I don't even do that. If I if I can just, I mean, first first uh, first off, it's because I want to listen. Yeah. More than I want to watch, I like, all oh, my ears to be fully engaged. But secondly, I, c- I can see you through my—I c- I can see a lot. I can see you through my peripherals. Like I know what's going on. Um, and uh, I know I've gotten like in trouble in the past. We're like, oh, we wish you know Matt was having a little more visual eye contact with us. Which is even if I feel like us. I don't even watch the conductor very much. Right. He's right like, in front yeah, you're, you're how, not. Alone. How often do I yeah. need to look up at you? Yeah, you're right there, I can—I can, <laughs> I can you, see what you're doing.
0: You see—you see him with peripheral. I mean, yeah, I, yeah. I can see him.
1: The one time when I'm really, when I do need to watch is like when there's a moment and when I I feel like the violas behind me are probably watching me. You know how it is when maybe the conductor is in the moment and they're they're not super clear about some pizzicato or something that everyone needs to be together. Mm -hmm. So there's always those moments where you you can tell right away, like, okay, he's not being very clear. So that's a moment where I'll I'll look at the concertmaster and just find, okay, like, hopefully you're going to show us all where it is and I'm just going to. I'll get back the you yeah. too. And, like, and hopefully everyone behind me is watching me. And I can tell like probably my section members, I imagine that those are moments where they, they want my guidance the most. Like most of the time mm-hmm. they probably don't ever need to look at me, but if there's something where they start to, if I start to feel a little uncomfortable when to come in, I'm sure they're feeling the same way. Um, so that's, that's like when a principal comes in, that's when you need to lay down a lot be like, Hey, we're here. Yeah. Like, even if you're wrong, like you see, you have <laughs> to make some of of executive decision. Right. Is it, but it's not even to me like the same thing as showing people where to come in. If everybody's paying attention and listening, then I feel like the principal's role is just as much to give everybody in the section the confidence yeah. to feel it at the same time. Yeah. Like it's, it's really hard to play it where you don't feel. Yeah. I, I think that that is what causes the tension you know, the internal tension when you're sitting in the orchestra. Yeah, no, I, I mean, I've had that uh, feeling when I've sat in the back of orchestras subbing, like the first time I subbed in New York Phil. I mean, it was partially because the way the violas were, we were on the outside of the stage. So I was like 50 feet away from the front of the orchestra. So I couldn't see anything anyways. But even more than that, I couldn't hear anything in front of me. Like there was, I couldn't hear the sound of the violas in front of me. It could have been the stage, I don't know what it was. But I remember I felt really uncomfortable. I was sitting in the back of the section, and I was just like, oh, my gosh. Like I felt alone. Shells. I felt alone. Yeah. I don't know what I should play. I don't, I don't know what to do here. Um, so that's something I always think about when I'm playing principal is, like, I don't want anyone behind me to have that feeling of nervousness. So I just – I figure I need to play out.
0: Um, Encourage people to play out. Yeah, you need to yeah.
1: – you want everyone to come with you. So and if I'm feeling nervous about coming in on something, I'm sure it goes further back. So – I always yeah. try to be as welcoming and try to show everyone like here we are and even if I'm wrong
0: that's especially tough on our stage I feel like because you do I mean it it is such a great hall and it's hard to make a bad sound in there but that but because you feel so isolated on stage sometimes especially if you're kind of far apart from your section you can feel very alone and so I feel like there are times because you can hear a pin drop in the in the hall, it can sometimes be hard to or or not feel right to play out because you feel like you want to stay behind the mm-hmm. sound of everybody else, yeah, but I guess as as principal you know you're probably working past that a lot of the uh, a lot of the time in in the hall i mean you're just getting comfortable all the time doing that, so mm-hmm. yeah. That's a nice thing from a, from a principal, I think, is just to be... I've always called it the permission to play, you know, because if, if you're giving that, then people feel like they can also give that too. Yeah, so, yeah. As
1: a conductor too, like when I've conducted student groups or community orchestras, a lot of the time I have to say something to the orchestra about how the tendency for string players to wait Right. Nobody wants to be the first person to fall into the hole. Mm -hmm. Nobody wants to uh, be wrong, and so it turns into this thing of everybody's waiting around until the absolute last possible second to play. And I find that, like, yeah, the stereotype for me is that string players are always doing a retardando, like on every bar, Mm -hmm. every beat. Sometimes is what it feels like. Yeah. And so I try and tell them like. Just play where you feel it, right, like don't worry about being wrong, just like be focused and be in the moment, and just play now then i and I try not to go like <laughs> you know yeah and and do something tricky with the baton with my hands right before an important
0: entrance, yeah, all right, well, we had a conversation what is that a week ago now about yeah, I guess is that know, a case yeah like that. about style and i thought you know i haven't used that word to describe my playing in a long time maybe when i was really young coming up you like think about genre within within music style within music or or it's like an academic thing style in writing and in music but how do you how do you how do you explain your style or what do you what do you mean by style is as a, in terms of like your identity or your in within your playing?
1: Yeah. Well, I don't know. It's a pretty loaded question. It's, it's something I, I still think about a lot too. It's, I think it's something that's always changing and it definitely takes a while to, to find your own voice on the instrument. Mm-hmm. Um, like I, I think about, well, I've, I've been lucky to have a lot of great teachers who are all phenomenal violists. So I think, during my undergrad, master's, arts diploma, all those years of uh, studying, I was just trying to copy my teachers. Like they, they would play something, and I'd be like, wow, that sounds awesome. I just want to learn to play that just like you. And that's what I did throughout most of school. I would just try to copy my teachers as much as I could, which, mm-hmm. I, which I think is an important skill. You want to be able to uh, hear something and be able to play it as much as you can just like that person. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I've also been known to just go into the, the depths of YouTube and just this downward spiral of searching on YouTube. But usually it's just I'm looking for, like, violinists, violas, cellists, like, bass players, too, you know, <laughs> anything to, to just find some inspiration. Um, but recently, I've, now that I don't have lessons anymore, really since I started the Kansas City Symphony job, I don't have lessons, so I don't have to show up every week playing something for a teacher and, and hoping that they like it, like, maybe I should play it, like, I know they want to hear it. So it's been, it's kind of been a freeing time for me uh, in my practice sessions where I can, I can just start thinking about, well, what do I like? What, what do I think sounds good to me? Um, and yeah, just how, how can I sound most convincing on everything I'm playing? So I've just been changing that a lot with my, my sound. It doesn't have to be, before it was always this huge emphasis on like, my whole life was like, as a violist, play with the big sound, play with a big sound. You need to have a big sound. That's all I you hear as a violist growing up. And I definitely worked on that. I think I have a big sound. But now I'm starting yeah. to realize like, there's a lot more to, to viola playing than just having a big sound. There's a lot of colors you can be searching for and different bow techniques. And So recently that's just kind of what I've been doing, trying to find more refinement to my playing and kind of smoothing out those rough edges.
0: So, so you sort of uh, separated in the practice session from the voice of your teachers and then the voice that you have and how over time have you learned to listen to yourself a little bit more or to your personal voice a little bit more? Like, is it, is it something, is it a conversation that you're having in the moment during practice with yourself of like, okay, I don't have to do that because somebody else did it or I don't have to do that because that's the rule. You know, like one we talk about often is, vibrato and it's like everybody i mean i i love uh you know um people who have great vibrato and i and i have had teachers who have excellent vibrato and they vibrate everything and they make it sound great but it isn't gonna happen for everybody like that unless you're just focusing on that all the time and sometimes it gets a little bit uh like you're you tend to focus too much on that, and you get analysis paralysis, right? Yeah. So, how do you, how do you go about bending the rules for your own voice without, or is that what it's about? Is 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 kind yeah. of studying? That's what I like about how that sounds. That's what I want.
1: Yeah, so. well, not having any teachers anymore, <laughs> you can kind of do what you want. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. I felt like when I was at Curtis, it was uh diaz roberto diaz has a very specific way of playing where he uses that we did show together and he, he uses the whole bow on every single note in Walton. and yeah. then, i mean, the whole idea is if you're going to project to the back of the hall then you need to use the entire bow uh, which is great but then i went and played it just like him i played it for one of my my previous teachers cynthia phelps she was just like what are you doing she's like why are you using the bow on it, the whole yeah. note on every single note like you don't need to do that like this this passage you're playing by yourself like the is not even playing so like why are you trying to play so loud and with this ridiculous vibrato um so so i, I mean what i found is the more i try to play like other players i mean i can't even tell you how many zuckerman videos i've, I've <laughs> freaking seen on youtube i mean he's yeah. like my idol but and i've, I've had weeks where i practicing where i'm like i gotta play like zuckerman like I, I need to do that. <laughs> That's the way. This is the way. I'm um, uh, sitting there with flat bow hair, like man, oh, like as close as I can to the bridge and trying to vibrate everything. But I just sound bad. Yeah. I, I just sound like a really bad Superman. Like not even anywhere near him. Just, I just sound bad. I don't sound true to myself and, and the music that I want to make. Um, so, I mean, as I said, it's still like an ongoing process. I'm still like constantly trying to to find new ways to play things um so I guess how do you find your own style I don't know I mean it's good to be able to take in everything you've learned from your teachers um you got to be like a sponge in that way it's good to absorb everything um, and have all these this bag of tricks you know this arsenal of all these things that you could do but at some point you just have to make your own decisions for yourself and I like to sing things a lot to myself when I'm practicing and like how would I sing it is that how I hear the phrase like and I kind of just go off that I try to I try to hear the feel the character of the music I'm playing, and then just forget about technical stuff and just see what happens if I just play it. Just trying to really feel that character. Mm-hmm. So that's something I've been working on recently. Um,
0: right. It's it's like uh, I talk about it because I mean we're all still trying to learn how to trust ourselves at this at this point. I mean I think the best musicians that I listen to just have it just seems like they don't care about what everybody thinks about what they're doing. You know, it's just how they want to play it because it's music. It's not what's right or wrong, right? So it's like they learn how to make these decisions. And over time they just trust their decisions and then they know that they're constantly evolving. It's not it's not ever finished. So they can still uh they can make these decisions now. This is what I want. And then it's not like it's set in stone, right? So like I think this is something I've I've thought about with the audition process where it's like you feel like because you're playing with so much pressure, right, in in, in a five-minute period, I think that makes you a little less personal. It makes you trust yourself a little less because you're like, this has to be finished on this day. And then there's so many people that you've played for along the way that are like, this works, you know, or like this audition culture of, like, tips and tricks for, like, this audition and, uh, and like, how this orchestra plays and how this orchestra plays, which is all fake, in my opinion. It's, like, no one plays just that way. I think there's, like, yeah. style that comes to playing in a, a certain hall, maybe in a certain culture, but, yeah. What mm-hmm. you gonna that say?
1: leads me to this question that I find really interesting, which is, like you said, like, when you get a job, you're not in school anymore. You don't have a teacher. And all these preconceived notions this culture that you've kind of been steeped in, such as what you were saying about, well, we got to have a big sound. You know, like, I think bass is a, similar uh, to viola in that respect, that it's easy to get steeped in this culture of, like, you have to have a, a huge sound. You have to have a big forte, big fortissimo, big accents, big sforzandos, and if you're not doing that, then you're cheating. And there is some truth in that, but at the same time, Like that can't be the be all and end all of your existence. And there's a whole lot more out there. And one of the things that I I think is interesting is as you transition from a student into a professional, where is the line between having confidence and belief in your identity as a player versus a keeping an open mind and being able to reconsider those things? about your identity because I feel like once you stop saying, once you say, okay, that's it. I figured it out. This is how I play. This is my identity. Then you are eliminating a lot of your potential for growth. Mm-hmm. Right. So how do you deal with that? You know, two opposing ideas of being open-minded and also being like true to yourself. Yeah. I mean, it's something I'm still like always dealing with. I feel like a month ago, I was I was still very much in this mindset where I was like I need to vibrate everything all the time. I need to play with a really big sound and and then and I forget who I was watching and again. I was on YouTube or something and I was I was watching I think I was watching Tobias Zimmerman and I was, I was watching her play and I saw she was doing so much non-vibrato and all all these notes like it was and it was so beautiful and I was sitting there I'm like wow man, I've always been told that you need to vibrate everything and yeah I get it you need to know you need to be able to vibrate every note um and have that technical ability but you don't need to vibrate everything all the time like it, if anything it gets tiring after a while for the listener so anyway, so I was listening to her play and I was like wow I think it's amazing the way she's using the bow and and she's not vibrating all these notes so that's kind of like a month ago that started getting me thinking like oh maybe I should try a little bit of this like maybe I don't need to be so stuck in my ways which I've been told to play this way for so long um so I don't know if that's really answering your question but
0: I think it's uh, there's also a a second part of this, which is, you know, every bass player uh, who has encountered Ed Barker just thinks it's. I mean, for the most part, it's just incredible, like what he does on the bass. I mean, he sounds like an upper string player. Like it's almost like his his arpeggione recordings. Like it could, like his his interpretation is like world class. Anyways. But he's built physically in a cer- in a certain way. Like he is like six four or whatever he's six two, and he has huge hands. Every finger is like this, you know, this wide. It's like two of, two of my fingers, and he plays the bass like it's a violin. And so for years, and I and I still see this with the bass players. People are just trying to sound exactly like Ed Barker, you know, because it's your teacher. But and I, and I don't want to. I don't want to you know send the message that people shouldn't ever try and mimic their teacher like it it is incredible to to be able to mimic like it is something you need to be able to do like you were saying earlier but sometimes the physicality of what they're doing is just not possible for your body mm-hmm. just because of the 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 mechanics of your hands mechanics of your your arms or physicality I guess yeah your biology but um so Yeah, I've always thought, I always thought that that's uh, something I go back and forth with of like, is it because I'm, uh, I'm not trying hard enough to do that or I'm not working on it enough? Or is it just not, I'm not going to be able to do it in that exact way. Like I'm not going to be able to use to get nerdy about it. I'm not gonna be able to use third finger or fourth finger in the same way. It's just, I just don't have a fourth finger that is like a first finger, Mm -hmm. you know?
1: So. yeah at some point you just have to like accept that like i used to like i had my one of my teachers he he could play without a shoulder rest and he played like a 17 inch mammoth field with no shoulder rest mm-hmm. and i always thought that was like really cool it was always like, like a thing in like the upper string world it's like wow people who don't play with shoulder rest like they're badass like <laughs> yeah i used to think that growing up like wow oh, that's really cool <laughs> i was like okay well like that teacher didn't have a neck like he literally it was just like it was just face and then shoulders. So maybe he could play with no shoulder rest, but <laughs> right. I cannot. Yeah, <laughs> right, right. So I just thought that it's not in the cards for me. I never knew to play with without a shoulder rest. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, so, and that kind of goes along with the same same lines as like uh, like I'm sure thing in the bass world like fingerings. Like you get like in Brahms sonatas or whatever you're playing. It's like there's these fingerings that it, from a kid it was like oh you have to do that you have to go on the g-string for that really awkward note because that's tradition and that's what everyone mm. does but like now i just don't care about any of that I like and if i, I had like my teacher toby there'd be times i'd go in i play something on the d-string I'd, I'd change strings for one note and he told me one time he's like well oh man i saw you change strings for that one note and uh you know if, if i had to do that because i couldn't do the other fingering i'd probably just stop. Playing like oh <laughs> my one God, <laughs> and anyway, it was it was pretty funny, like I was laughing, but, <laughs> but yeah, like, like I said in my in my YouTube searches, i sometimes I'll find like the same piece I've always played and been doing these fingerings forever, because I'm told you have to do that fingering, and I heard recordings recently where they were doing completely different fingerings, things i never thought of, things that are a lot easier mm-hmm. in first edition, and it sounded amazing, yeah, I'm like, why why don't I just do that?" That sounds just yeah. as good. I don't need to do that one fingering that this person has been telling you to do forever, right. just because that's tradition. Mm-hmm. Um, and like I know from a lot of my bass friends, uh, they all a lot of them started like Eugene Levinson. Mm-hmm. and I felt like that's what I always heard from them. It was, you know, it's kind of like that's kind of that old school way of teaching. Like there's one way. Yeah, there's it is one way school. to do excerpts. There's one way to to finger these pieces. Like yeah, and if you're not doing that, then you're wrong. Yeah, and I think that's something. Now that I'm out of school and on my own, I'm realizing like that's just not the case. Like there's many ways to play, many fingers you do in excerpts, many ways to hold the instrument without a shoulder rest or with it. Yeah, it doesn't, it doesn't matter. It's just whatever suits your body. Um,
0: yeah. yeah, and 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 this uh, this goes right into what we talk about next, with which is being convincing. Which is like, if you try and. And I'm, I mean, look, disclaimer, I'm still figuring these things out. I feel like I'm just at the beginning of, of understanding what I would actually like to play or how I would actually like to play things. But you have to learn how to do that before you can be convincing, I think. I mean, whatever baggage you have about you haven't decided on something or you're still trying to figure out if you should play it like somebody else, that's not going to be convincing, right? It's not yeah. going to be. So do you have, do you, do you have like technical things about, about being convincing or is it like just all down to like your well musicality?
1: I was lucky. Uh, so I, I did tell you Toby Apple and one of the big things he stressed on me from the beginning, which is my first year at Juilliard was that you need to, anything you play you need to approach it in a way that you're playing it for someone who's never heard that piece before Mm. um and i thought that was like a really interesting thing um so he's trying to say like you can't over exaggerate anything like you need to make all your musical tense very clear and clearly show the phrasing or else it's just they're going to be confused in the audience it's kind of like i don't know like an author if they're writing a paragraph or something like they need to use periods commas exclamation points question marks whatever it is they need to put these in the paragraph or else it just becomes this long run- on sentence that's just a bunch of gibberish mm-hmm. um, so that's something I, I he taught me to always be thinking about when I'm approaching a new piece of music is like okay where am I going to put in this period like is this the end of the phrase or how am I going to show the audience that this is not the end this is just tailing into something new mm-hmm. um, so I always thought that was that always helped me when it comes to and convincing because if you're not convinced yourself and what you're doing then I mean it's not going to come across to the audience um, and then something else uh, that's been helping me and I've been thinking about recently recently um, is I well I did, I did these master classes one time in Austria with like this Viola legend Thomas Riebel and I'll, I'll never forget it. I was playing like it Hindemith Opus Eleven Four Sonata, and there's one variation in there that I can't exactly remember what the German says, but it's something along the lines of like very bizarre or like weird. Like this variation is supposed to sound like that, and I I didn't know what the German meant, so I I just played it for him, and I don't know, I played it like whatever, however. Sounds was, good. However, I was feeling yeah, I was like, oh, sounds good. Yeah, that it sound. yeah, and he just like stopped me. He's like, what are you doing? Like he's like, do you know what the German means there? I'm like. No, like I don't. And he told me, he's like, well, it's very bizarre. It's weird. And, um, you know, you're not playing it like that at all. And then before he had played again, he was like, so, like, now that you know what it means, like, how are you going to play that? Like, how are you going to, what are you going to do to make that sound bizarre and funky? And I started, like, saying all this technical, you know, BS. I was like, <laughs> oh, well, maybe if I just don't vibrate with this one note, or maybe if I, if I do something with the bow. And he just like, he was just, like, no. Like, that's not how you do it. He's like, you like need to feel that. You need to feel that emotion. You need to be the one who's bizarre and weird, like mm-hmm. deep inside. You need to feel that emotion, and if you don't, then it's not. You're never going to be able to do it. And he demonstrating, he demonstrated what he was talking about, and it was like, holy crap! It was like this huge aha, like lights on moment where I was like, oh my gosh! Like that, that makes perfect sense.
0: Um, how how do you feel like people tap into that? That's always been something I, because I, I do feel like it is innate in a lot of musicians. I think that is maybe something that comes more natural to some, somebody. They just, they see something, they've heard it before, they play it, and then they just, they feel it. It's just affecting them, mm-hmm. you know. But how do you, how do you tap into that? I, I, it's always been.
1: I don't know. I think, I mean, for myself, I think I just had to, you had to take risks and. And in your own practice sessions, you need to just, you need to just try it. You need to just don't care if you feel embarrassed. You don't have to make stupid faces when you play or like, Ooh, I'm feeling sad. Like, (laughs) but you need to like, just do what you can to try to feel that emotion. And then stop thinking about all the technique and all the technical aspects of playing. Just like, see what happens. If you're just purely feeling that emotion, you play the same phrase and, and see what happens. See how your, your body reacts to it, how your playing reacts to it. Um, like I said, that's how I do it. I'll take the same phrase and I'll do it like a couple times, like just in trying to make it sound different, trying to cue into my emotions. Uh, I think we're talking about a sense when we discuss like why is one performance musical and another one is more or less musical than the than the other performance. What we're, we're talking about is something that we don't often put into words, which is that. As a musician develops throughout their life, and maybe some are blessed with you know hypersensitivity, uh, but what they're really talking about is like a music sense. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe the same way that like a gourmet chef can understand the nuances and the balances of flavor, whereas most people can just say like, "Well, that tastes good or it doesn't." Mm-hmm. right? A chef can think in more dimensions. But they understand like what those things are, the balance between the different flavors. And I think one disservice that we do in the music teaching, it's not an industry, but the music teaching field, right, is that we talk about technique, but we leave musical exploration up to feeling, mm-hmm. right? And we use language such as like, you have to feel the music more, you know, you put yourself in the emotions of the piece and all those are true and valid. But it doesn't always tell students what to do in order to attain that, which is why sometimes I think it takes a lot, years of experience yeah. for students to develop their like, internal sense of, of what constitutes musical playing. And I think you hit on it a little bit when you were talking about in the second performance, you were much more sensitive to the harmonic direction of the piece, the contour of the line, and where the resolutions were in the cadences and other things like where the sequences were going it, and those are all things that are like pretty complicated to talk about with students because there's so many micro events happening yeah. in each measure or in each part of each measure and in pieces like Bach where the harmony it's unaccompanied so the harmony isn't really there it's implied mm-hmm. harmony yeah so I think uh those things that you were talking about it's really helpful to uh discuss those things because students it's stuff that's under the surface and and as teachers you know we have to hope that they can see through and get those like underneath the surface ideas yeah um but they're very hard to communicate like i said earlier you know it's part of finding your own style like i said it it takes time Mm -hmm. some of that takes years and years before you start to find your own voice i think on an and I'm sure as a teacher it's like well the student needs to have the technical foundation right like yeah, if you, if you don't if you don't have those technical abilities um, you don't know how to use the bow properly to make different colors or you haven't spent time trying to figure out how to do types different, different of vibrato like wherever it is then okay maybe you'll have a harder time being able to just right away switch gears and play something with a totally different sound so yeah so you need it you need to be able to do it you need to have all those tricks in your arsenal Mm-hmm. um but yeah do you remember a time in your career as a student where you started to feel more in tune with what constituted musical playing well I think I was always kind of one of those I feel like there's at least one. I used to think there was like two types of musicians right that's what people talk about like, oh yeah that person's super musical but they don't, you know, they're not very technical. They play that tune. Or like the opposite, that person's really technically proficient, but they're not very musical. Like you'd always like, yeah, hear always that, you know, those two. There's always those two, those two types of players. That mm-hmm. those are the only two, yeah. Um, and I think growing up, I always thought of myself as someone who was naturally pretty musical. Um, I mainly, I mean, I would just sing things a lot, and I would, I was always like thinking of phrasing and how to make things, you know, more musical but I, I thought I lacked technique. So usually when I was growing up, like that's all I practiced. I was like, oh, I got the musical stuff down. Oh yeah, I have that down. Like I need, I need to practice my technique, like scale, 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 and stuff like that. Um, and, and maybe that's true. Maybe I was more of that type of player and maybe someone who is, uh, maybe that doesn't come as easy to some people to just be able to feel something and just go, like you were saying, based on sense and, and produce it. So I guess. Maybe there are those two types of players. Maybe you got to find out which category you're in. <laughs> no, we, we've
0: talked before about how musicians love, or well, humans love to just categorize things like that. And it's like we talk about all, I, I used to, I, I have been guilty of using the words, oh, this is an extroverted, I'm more of an extroverted player. This is an introverted player. But it's like, what does that mean? And it's not like every extroverted player is the same. You know, some people are just brutes and it's annoying to listen to, right? And some people, it's extroverted and you're just like, wow, it's just so convincing. So it's never those two things or like this orchestra plays this way, like we were talking about earlier. It's never that simple, but we just love to just, because it, it makes it a little bit more easy to think about, I guess, in our, yeah. you know, mm-hmm. our... that is possible to be lizard technical
1: and musical at the same time or that... Or that, like you said, the concept of, like, well, I'm a musical player, so if I can just learn how to play in tune, I would be unbeatable. Yeah. Versus, Everything. like, the idea, like, you no, actually, you still need to develop musicality. Yeah. Like, and and it's a skill that you have to learn how to speak that language. And you have to work on. Mm-hmm. And like I said, I thought I was a like musical player when I was a kid, mm-hmm. but I, I played very square. <laughs> and I had a teacher tell me that one time. <laughs> it was like, yeah, it was some audition. He was like, he was like, man. Nah. You play like a Toyota Camry. He's like, <laughs> he was like he was like you have all the parts, engine's working fine, you can get from destination A to B. Hey, they're like,
0: reliable, man. Oh, they're yeah, reliable. Very reliable. Like
1: he's like, but I want you to play like a Ferrari. This is what this guy said. I was like. You are <laughs> such a ass. But like <laughs> you know, then looking back, I'm like, well, he's kinda right. I was playing like a yeah. reliable a Toyota Camry. I wasn't taking any risks in my playing at all. It was just it was just technically proficient, um, so maybe maybe that's what he was trying to tell me all those years ago, and why I didn't get into that school. <laughs> <laughs> I used to think musicality was like if I played as loud as I could and used a lot of vibrato and then like headbanged a little bit. Mm-hmm. That, that was what musicality was. Yeah, you know, uh, I still like that, that. Like yeah, just headbanging head is passion. You know, <laughs> that is passion. Yeah. But feeling passion is not the same thing as communicating passion. Right? Yeah. Yeah. like caring a lot. That was a mistake that I made in my undergrad. I thought that like if I tensed every muscle in my body when I played, that it would convey some like musical tension. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, uh, instead you just get injured. Yeah. And <laughs> or, the audience would feel tense as well. Man. You just feel, you just feel exhausted <laughs> after like 10 minutes of playing. Yeah. And then everyone in the master class is like,
0: yeah, seems like you, uh, should practice some more. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, our, uh, I think our last topic is uh, what are some mistakes you have made in your career so far or in school and what have you learned from them? If you want to get into this, this oh, is something it. you don't need to get into.
1: Right. Yeah. I won't go into too much detail.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It can
1: also be like, do you have any advice? Like if you could go back in time and give yourself some advice, what would you Yeah. Need? Oh, but that's a, well, you know, there's, there's been a couple things that I've done. Mm-hmm. I've said sometimes I'm trying to sleep at night. They just like creep into my mind. Just, mm-hmm. why, why did you say that, you idiot? Um, so, I mean, what I, I mean, it was, it was pretty much I, I just not realizing how small the music world is. When I was when I was younger, I like, I don't know if my ego got in the way, but there was times where I, I said things to whatever my superiors or mentors of these institutions and uh, in not such a diplomatic way and this like really rubbed people the wrong way um and it's just something i, I could have gone back i'm like well for, i probably would have just bit my tongue and not said anything but if i did need to say it because i felt strongly about those things but i, I probably should have gone about it a better way and not just tell them like this worship bummer freaking sucks like, <laughs> 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 like, i probably shouldn't have done that in front of the entire school yeah. um but i did <laughs> and then, and then, like I said, the music world is really small, and that's something that it still follows me around. I mean, like when I was auditioning for jobs and stuff, I felt like there was this preconceived uh, reputation of mine that was going around. They're like, "Oh, yeah." Next thing you know, it's like, "Well, we don't really want to hire this guy because I heard he's an asshole." And like you, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and you don't, you don't want that.
0: Anymore. I, I think that is. I, I mean, I did the same thing. I think it is also just that if you don't grow up in the world with the mentors early on, like I I went to public school. I went to I grew up in a, you know, middle class home. It just wasn't I wasn't surrounded by this type of culture, especially when you go to NEC as a freshman. You're like, what is this? And then you don't realize as an 18 year old that this is you're kind of running yourself like it's a business, but you're not going to be in business till later on. But you're advertising for yourself right now. Yeah. Basically. Yeah, I did not realize that. But I think that's also something with the music world where it's like, Hey, let's forgive the people who are, you know, teenagers. I'd like think. And children still. I like but, to yeah. think they
1: looking back, those teachers are like, Well, Matthew was nineteen at the time and now he's probably grown up a lot. Yeah. And wouldn't have said those things. Yeah. I'm hopeful that's what's coming
0: out. <laughs> oh, it's exactly the same. Exactly the same. Well, I think it's,
1: yeah. you know, when you're a musician, oftentimes to become successful, you have to have pride. You have to have some sort of ego. You have to have a secure personality, right? Mm-hmm. But getting along in life, people with big egos, who have big personalities, uh, who have a lot of pride, often run into interpersonal problems. Right, so I mean, it's a pretty common thing, and when you add in like the the competitive aspect of when you're in school and playing an instrument, mm-hmm. I think that just multiplies it. So, like, I I actually encourage students to develop an ego and a, and a personality, not so like that they act uh, egotistical, but more so that like they have a solid concept of who they are Mm -hmm. because I feel like that comes out in playing when somebody has you know if I have a timid student who's like afraid to make a mistake you know or who when I ask them a question they're afraid to say the wrong answer things of that nature yeah you know I'll encourage them to like the lesson is your safe place you know you're not going to get in trouble for like saying or doing the wrong thing in here so like develop your sense of self Mm -hmm. I think that music world could do a better job of shepherding, you know, young, upcoming musicians in that way, because I bet you had like a bright spark of potential because of some of those character aspects that you're looking back on as causing you trouble. I bet it was also a reason that you also had success. I think it's a big yeah. I mean, like that you said, maybe
0: you shouldn't be reprimanded, but it should be altered I mean, just slightly. Yeah. Not not yeah. I mean. That's, that's a part of your personality. I mean, you hear so much like we've been talking about developing your personality, develop, develop, develop your style in music. It's but all related. If, if, you're, only, if you're told that you have to be a certain way in the music world, and if you're told you have to be a certain way in the, in, in the job, and, and you have to be this professional person with no personality, which is how it seems like a lot of the time. how do you do that in your music? How are you supposed to communicate that? So yeah, I mean, like what what were you saying? Oh, they're all. Yeah, it's all connected. Like yeah, you know, it is.
1: The sounds someone makes out of their instrument is usually in direct correlation of who they are as a person. Like their own personality comes through in their in their style, like we've been talking about. Yeah, and uh, yeah, I mean, I think it is what you're saying. Part of the reason why I've been somewhat successful is I was always like pretty when I was younger. Especially, I was pretty sure of myself and. I thought I was like hot shit when I was like 16. I was like good at the beer, yeah, But yeah, it also got me to just a couple times. It's not like I was going around being like this huge jerk. Oh, we know the on. we know the rap record back. We know the we've got it all listed. Yeah. Well, what about you, Caleb? Do you have any uh, thing mistakes that you made, or you know, looking back?
0: Hey, this is Matts. Time. Just, yeah, no, no. <laughs> oh, sorry. I want oh, to hear about. We're running out of time, no. fellas. It's getting late. Yeah. How long are we on this on yeah. this thing? <laughs> uh, mistakes. I mean, I. I. It's similar to Matt. I. I think I just. Uh, I don't know. I was a teenager with too much testosterone. It's not like I'm. It, you know. It's funny saying that. Being only ten years uh, later, I. I do remember distinctly one moment. Uh, I was at this, this base camp and uh, I'm not going to say anything about the base camp or, or who was there, but I, I played and I wasn't, I didn't like how I played and I was maybe 16 at the time, but there's this, I mean, it's just a room full of professional bass players, all, you know, pretty famous bass players. And so as a kid, I'm like, oh, I didn't like how I played. So I you know, you don't know how to react at that moment. You're like, and you just do it in the most wrong way that you can, because you're 16. And somebody asked me about something and they were like, why did you do this here? Or how do you, how do you, they were basically asking me to get me to like, understand what went wrong in the performance or like how it went wrong. And I was like, Oh, I just didn't care very much about it, which is not true at all. And, and I remember, like, saying, like, oh, just, I just didn't practice very much. I just don't care. It doesn't matter. And doing this in front of a bunch of people or, you know, a, a base camp and in front of people who care about music so much. And I also care about it. And I was just saying it because I felt like an uncomfortable teenager in that moment who was just, like, being angsty, you know. Um so that's 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 one of those moments one of those moments for me. But I mean, the amount of times that I put my foot in my mouth in front of somebody who I should have <laughs> is is an, I mean, you, there's a whole file cabinet for that. So yeah, I don't know. Let's since we're doing the roundtable, what about you, Richard? Yeah,
1: I think uh, I mean obviously I have a lot of cringeworthy moments that, like Matt said, sometimes I'm going to bed late like, at night and I and they pop in and I'm like, ooh, why did I say that? Mm-hmm. But
0: For me, like, in terms of my
1: musical career, I think that I was too wrapped up in being good at bass. It was, like, too much of a part of my identity. And it made it so that uh, criticism was, like, a challenge to who I was as a person. And so I went through, like, my young adult life kind of, trying to be really good, as good as I could be. But what I wanted most from teachers was just praise. And so if I didn't get that, I just kind of thought the teacher was a jerk or didn't like me or, you know. And if the teacher got a sense that I had a big ego, sometimes they would purposefully withhold praise on purpose, right? To try and be like, okay, I don't want to inflate this kid's head. I want to focus on what to say to help help him get better and urge him to practice more and any any of these things. Um, But it ended up just being like, I put my heart and soul into the playing and I just wanted that to be good enough. And what I would do differently is like allow myself as a young man to just see getting better as like a process, as a journey rather than the destination of being good, quote unquote, as being like part of who you are, because I had kind of thought of myself, like I'm destined for great things. And because I had that thought, it prevented me from doing all like the emotional internal work that it takes to actually become great. So I don't think I really met my full potential that I could have as a young man, because I was too set in you know my identity if mm-hmm. that makes sense
0: you were uh, too set in your ways as a as a young man <laughs> yeah I know imagine that <laughs> <laughs> well thanks man thanks for coming over thanks for showing us your beautiful playing and answering our questions and letting thanks us to you you're welcome cheers about random stuff. cheers <laughs> um, all right well We'll see everybody later. All right. That was our conversation with Matt Sino. If you enjoyed this, uh, please subscribe from the podcast platform that you're listening from. And I appreciate you listening.